0: The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to
1: Museum Life with Carol Bossard. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy, but today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert.
2: Welcome to Museum Life. This is Carol Bossert. Uh, I am so glad that you've had uh, a chance to join us today. I am really excited about uh, my guest. Uh, Max Anderson is going to be with us today. And uh, for listeners who have been uh, uh, keeping up for the past few weeks, you know that we've had really sort of three themes running through our shows. We've been talking about the importance of creativity in the work we do. We've been talking about the importance of leadership. And we've also been talking about the impact that digital media has been making. And so not only am I pleased to welcome Max to the show because he's a longtime friend and colleague, but the work that Max is doing currently at the Dallas Museum of Art is really exemplifying how all three of those components can work so well together. Uh, So before I, uh, let me also take an opportunity to introduce uh, Max. He actually doesn't need much of an introduction. He is currently the, I always, Eugene McDermott, uh, right. uh, director of the Dallas Museum of Art in Dallas, Texas. Uh, Max has, has uh, held many very important museum director positions, including uh, from the Indianapolis Museum of Art, one of my very favorite museums in the world, being from, from Indiana myself. Uh, Max was also at the Whitney Museum of American Art, the Art Gallery of Ontario, and the Michael C. Carlos Museum in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, Max has degrees from Dartmouth and a master's and Ph.D. in art history from Harvard University, and he is probably one of the most prescient museum art directors in the world when looking at the impact of uh, digitization in our museum field. And so, Max, it is just such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Carol, thank you
3: so much for having me. I'm really excited to be on.
2: Max, uh, I I think that uh, it would really help our listening audience to understand, uh, and please take as much time as you want, because I just think that this is the most incredibly interesting project that you uh, pioneered at the Dallas Museum of Art and your new membership program.
3: <laughs> well, thanks, Carol. I mean, I, like you, watched museums over the years establish membership programs as a core bedrock, the proof that they matter to their communities. And it's one of the things that museum directors say to each other when you run into somebody at a meeting or wherever, is how's your membership doing? It's as if it's a barometer of your health and your relevance. And I've actually never believed that. I've always felt that entry-level membership is a matter of reciprocity between what a museum offers and what a patron gets out of it. It's transactional. And it's only when you get up to an amount of money over, in my experience, about $100 or more that people are giving beyond what they're getting back. And so what I looked at as we went to a free admission model here in January of 2013 was to ask what would happen if we also went to a free entry-level membership program because in the end, under $100, we're not making money, we're actually spending money. (laughs) We pay staff, we have front-of-house costs associated with managing it, we have events that we put on, mailings, we have the opportunity cost of tickets we're no longer selling, parking we're no longer selling, so why would we not make membership free? And set up, instead of a transactional basis that's based on money, a transactional basis of participation. And it's basically like a frequent flyer program on an airline. You show up, and instead of sitting on a plane and earning points, you walk into the museum and you start earning points. And those points, in turn, allow us to track what you're doing in the museum, which to me is the second thing I'm curious about, not just who's coming in, uh, and who they are as members, but what are they doing, how are they spending their time? And by presenting their membership card to an iPad camera, there are dozens around the building in galleries and in education spaces, every time they present it and get it inside the frame of the iPad camera, they're automatically added points to their account and they can track that in real time. And then the next thing we discover is what they want to use the points for. <laughs> So we set up a currency that was pretty typical about the typical under-$100 membership, parking, exhibition tickets, and uh, discounts in the store and in the cafe. And we watch how people elect to use these points that they've earned from showing up and participating. So in the end, we today have 58,000, I'm just looking on the screen, 426 friends. We had zero in January of 2013. We're adding about 1,000 a week. it's been pretty regular through this 15-month period or so. And today, for example, we average about 155 new friends uh, we should have today. And it's pretty constant, and it's astonishing to us, because we thought in a city of our size in the metro area of 6.8 million people, uh, we would draw a certain percentage, and then it would flatten out and stay Flat, But it's, it's still growing. So long story short, we're learning about our people's interests, backgrounds. Their zip code tells us what we need to for the U.S. Census data. And we're measuring in real time our relevance to the lives of our tens of thousands of new friends.
2: Fascinating. Fascinating. Now, remind me, Max, uh, and I should know this, but I've, I've forgotten. Uh, is there an entrance fee to the museum itself?
3: When I got here, and it was a fee that had been put in place about a decade earlier, for our first hundred years, we were free. And then, like a lot of museums, at the beginning of the millennium, there was a feeling that we were leaving money on the table, so we started to charge. And I made the point to the board that we were only making about 2.7% of our earned revenue, or of our total revenue, from general admissions. We still charge for special exhibitions selectively, uh, the big ones, but we typically don't charge for smaller exhibitions or very scholarly, small exhibitions. But now general admissions free and we should, as a result of that, we've added about 100,000 visitors. We should end this year about 600,000 visitors. <laughs>
2: I, I want to go back to the statistic because I've, I've heard it before, I know you've said it, and I do uh, believe what you say, but that your admission was only covering 2.7% of your total operating costs. Do I, right. do I understand yeah. that correctly?
3: Yeah, I, our museums are strange. We, we don't, like science museums and zoos and aquaria, we don't see, unlike those, we don't see a big return from general admissions. We often do for the occasional special exhibition, but the general at-the-door permanent collection ticket revenue museums across the country is normally under 5%, sometimes 4%, uh, and sometimes, in our case, closer to 3%. So... so
2: so you really you've turned this entire uh business model on its head. You know, so you challenge the uh the belief that well, we have to charge money because then our uh patrons or our audience or visitors will value it more. They don't value anything that's free. I mean, that that, that that was that 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 was something that was going around for a while. Uh that I yeah, decided I that I would not that. embroider on a on a pillow. Um you know, people people, people but, uh, don't want I free stuff. (laughs)
3: Yeah, I love that one because it's so counterintuitive. I mean, I like water at a water fountain. It doesn't taste better to me if I had to pay for it. And when I hear a song on the radio, it doesn't sound worse than if I paid for it on iTunes. And if I'm sitting on an airplane... Flying somewhere with a free ticket, I don't consider it a lesser journey than if I paid for it. Or facebook I don't wish Facebook started charging. I don't – you know, <laughs> these, this is not, for me, a relevant fact. I think there are instances in which you could say, intuitively, I understand something's more valuable if it's worth more money, clearly, but not at this level of, of uh, currency.
2: I, I, yes. Uh, and – And it goes against the whole rationale for why we do what we do. Uh, We want to get people into the museum so that they can enjoy the art, so that we can have conversations with them. And one of the barriers to that, uh, certainly from a diversity standpoint, is charging money uh, for people who might not otherwise come. So congratulations no, no. for you to be able uh, to make that stance and I wish more institutions uh, even non art museums I think uh, might might do well to start looking at their uh, uh, their business models a little more a little more, uh, little more creatively. Uh, so, you, you were giving us some numbers about, um, you know, how, how many friends you have now, how many people are using this. I understand that. So, you get a free card when you come in. You can then use it. You get all of the demographic information that is so very valuable to, uh, to us in museums. Uh, since you're not charging, you can, you can use the free membership to get that information. Uh, so what are some of the trends that you've seen? Uh, over the last fifteen months and in you know who 's coming who 's using it, are you surprised about different ages
3: yeah we're we 're seeing uh, as you suggested a lot more diversity in our audience, and part of that is that there are a lot of families in town that look for free events for their families for things to do in the city that don 't other than going to the mall, which typically isn 't going to be free you 're going to end up spending something. And there's a mall not far from us, or you know, ten minutes north on the on a freeway, which has about twenty-seven million visitors a year. Uh, so, I look at data that tells us about how we're doing, not just in terms of numbers of people, but as you say, who are these people? So, the zip code analysis is telling us that we're starting to serve constituencies in South Dallas, which is a traditionally less well-heeled audience, but also more broadly into the suburbs of the North, where we hadn't had much impact. And yes, we're getting our core constituency from people in affluent neighborhoods as well, but more importantly, we're starting to understand where the holes are. And if I set a goal for the staff in attendance, it's not growing the attendance. It's being more representative of the demographic weighting of zip codes in terms of our attendance with respect to the actual demographic constitution of our metro area. So I would want our staff in education and marketing to be focused on the deserts of attendance. Why is this zip code not showing up? And make the inquiries on the ground with school superintendents, with others to try to incentivize participation. To me, a winning strategy is to say, to be the great public art museum that we aspire to be, we should be serving every constituency. And so that's what we're trying to accomplish just in terms of the background of our visitors. What's really interesting to me is what they're doing when they're here, because typically the museum counting game stops at the front door. The clicker is done and that's all you know. (laughs) I'm interested in how much time they spend in which galleries in the education center which we call the center for creative connections what they're doing when they're here and the second most popular activity after visiting the museum has become identifying your favorite work of art and so tens of thousands of people are typing on the ipads around the building the accession number the inventory number of one or more works of art that they like and when they do this two things happen number one we learn about their tastes and two we we also get some uh, remarkable information about uh, our visitors in, in respect to the where they're going around the building, and they get points for doing this, so that's part of why they do it, I'm sure, but we learn a lot more as a function as well, so that's exciting for us to learn.
2: Oh I think you know that's brilliant the the whole idea of points of course just appeals to me on so many different levels I would be going back every single day just because I'm 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 motivated by the points anything that's going to be uh give me give me more points but the other part of this is that by by asking our audience what they like not maybe that's the the uh, what the curator likes or figuring out what the most important thing is uh, from a certain epoch or time period. You're really giving visitors permission to like something and have an opinion themselves.
3: Right, and I can't claim that it's scientific yet. The data isn't big enough yet. I mean, tens of thousands of people is not yet hundreds of thousands. And bear in mind, we have some very animated and personable uh, Guides and guards and visitor assistants who, when a hapless visitor walks into a gallery looking baffled, will walk up to them and say, hey, come have a look at this work. <laughs> so there's an Etruscan gold fibula or safety pin uh, from the 6th century B.C. that I know one of our visitor services staff is really impressed by. And so that has an outsized number of likes because I think people are being directed by him when they're looking around what to see, what to care about. So we have, Uh. obviously, you know, there are some ways in which the data is influenced, but I think more important than a specific outcome is that you're right, we're giving permission for our visitors to feel like it's their visit, it's their opportunity to comment. And in time, what we'd like to understand is how successful our strategies are in making visitors feel connected with our collection.
2: It's a it's a very civil approach to uh, audience.
3: Well, it's entirely opt-in also. I mean, bear in mind, you can tell with 600,000 visitors, only 58,000 are friends. It's, the other 90% are either partners, which is to say they pay $100 or above, and then they don't need to collect, collect points to get stuff like exhibition tickets and parking. And that that's a constituency that's about 15,000 member households, which is providing over $4 million of revenue a year. So, in fact, our membership program, although it went free under $100, has grown in revenue even as its, its numbers have increased at the free part. And the numbers have shrunk somewhat in the paying part in terms of numbers of households. the per capita gift has given up uh, has grown by over ten percent, so we 're making more money by being free. I guess that 's the core business
2: model i i I couldn't say it any better and max i 'm <laughs> going to say no it 's wonderful if and and so listeners, if you listen to nothing else uh that max says uh remember that they 're making money because it 's free uh I think that there's there's a lot more to unpack with that statement and others, and we're going to have that opportunity to have further discussions with Max and hear about some of his other impressions about museums and how we can really do what we say that we want to do, which is to serve our communities. We will be back in a moment, but before I break, I want to remind you that you can always reach me at carolbossertservices.com. You can always uh, send me an email at carol.bossard at verizon.net. What museum issues would you like us to be uh, talking about and being in conversation? Uh, We will be back in just one moment. And this is Museum Life with Carol Bossard.
4: the experts. Call toll-free right now, one 472 5787 and ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling voiceamerica.com. Think of the world 50 years ago. the leader in internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com
1: You're tuned into to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to to carol.bossert at verizon.net Now, back to Museum Life.
2: Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and you're listening to Museum Life. And on today's program, we are talking with Max Anderson, who is the Eugene McDermott Director at the Dallas Museum of Art in Dallas, Texas. Uh, you'll also know that Max has uh, also been the uh, president of the Art Museum Association Directors, Director of Art Museum, however you say that, Uh and uh, we've been talking a little bit about one of his new membership programs that is uh, very, very uh, uh, cutting edge, taking care of uh, digitiz- uh, digital media um, and, uh, and iPads around the museum and getting information. And, you know, Max, it reminded me of some of the work that you also did when you were uh, at the Indianapolis Museum of Art. You installed the first Digital dashboard that actually allowed uh, visitors to look on your website and uh, uh, read some metrics and see how you were you were doing as an institution. What what was what was the the uh, idea behind that?
3: Well, yeah, it's almost seven years ago now, and it's still up in Indianapolis, and we have a version here of uh, the dashboard at the Dallas Museum of Art as well, and the premise. Was a very simple one, which is that nonprofits have a case to make for support, and that over the last two decades, foundations and government agencies, as well as corporations, have been asking, Well, what is my grant supporting? What are you doing to warrant it? And in the olden days, you just had to write a really spanking, clean narrative describing what you were going to do, and it wasn't really until the Wallace Foundation. Um, said many years ago actually we 'd also like to evaluate how you did, not just what you say you 're going to do and put put the fear of God in everybody that suddenly we actually were accountable. so it started a whole way of thinking about museum performance on my part, and about ten years ago i 'd written an essay called Metrics of Success in Art museums and in it it was a kind of of uh, an exploration of how it is that we can identify the specific areas of achievement that a museum might seek to quantify and qualify. So it was three years after that that we, when I got to Indianapolis, I got there in 2006, the next year we introduced a dashboard that was intended to put forward what had previously been considered very sensitive information, like financial information, number of attendees, number of visitors in real time with a thermal camera at the entrance, and... a a quantification of other forms of museum activity that might be of interest to funders, the public, journalists, museum studies people, scholars, whomever it might be, by saying we're not making bombs here. And the two things I never believe are appropriate to release would be matters of health, records of our staff, or the salaries of people earning under $100,000. And other than that, it's all fair game, should be on your website, and what's the problem?
2: Interesting, interesting. And you said that you've also uh now instituted a similar program in in Dallas.
3: Yeah, we have a dashboard up on our on our site. I would say We're working towards a more robust version of it, which is a balanced scorecard that will measure in real time a variety of other features that we're drilling into that are qualitative. That's the hardest nut to crack, which you know better than almost anybody, that it's all well and good to count beans and people and impulses and dollars, but it's very hard to count experiences and measure them. So that's what we're working on in a kind of uh, clandestine way because we don't want to get it too wrong the first time we launch it. But I would hope that in a few months' time we will have that up and running as the next chapter in self-evaluation ready for prime time and for review and consideration.
2: Uh, I think, I think that that's wonderful. And, uh, if anyone can, uh, can find out, uh, identify how, how we can reliably identify some of these more qualitative metrics, I think that you, you will be able to do that. So I'm going to be watching very carefully because see, mm-hmm. if you, if you get the answer, then, then I'll look really smart.
3: I have to tell you that Rob Stein, our deputy director who was with me in Indianapolis, is a key advocate and proponent and architect of whatever we do in this sphere. And so Rob has has just lured away from the Metropolitan Museum their head of collection information. He's built a team of software developers here, and it's in his watchful eye and judgment that we're birthing this next chapter as well
2: i am so glad that you brought up uh rob's rob's name i have i've had the pleasure of of meeting him um it, and it and it brings me to another very important point that I, I i wanted you to comment on you know having uh watched you in indianapolis and now in dallas you have worked very very hard to bring uh what i would call digital capacity to very senior levels within uh at, at the museum. And to me, as an outsider, it seems that that is a critical component of your success. Could you comment a little bit more about, about your, your thought process in, in elevating um, uh, uh, people that understand digital media, software development, uh, know the questions to ask and know how to write the code to pretty senior levels within your institution?
3: Well, thanks. I mean, success is a, a quite a variable thing to, to claim. I don't claim success in any respect there because I think we're all still swimming in this uh, Pleistocene era about where this is taking us, uh, this being suddenly the combination of the chip and the network and what's behind it all. But what I look for uh, in Rob's expertise is... Not what bells and whistles exist that we could play with, but how do we move the mission of the museum forward using a language um, that's, in this case, digitally based. And I think museums do better when they're conversant in the language of the time they live in. This happens to be the primary language for us today is ones and zeros. And I don't have that expertise, so I rely on talented people who do what I Rob knows, and, his, and those on his team know, is that I'm not very interested in technology uh, because it changes every mm-hmm. every few minutes, and what was important last year no longer is. So the platform of how something operates, I don't claim to understand, or nor am I particularly interested in. I'm interested in the outcomes that. Uh, a digital strategy allows for in furthering our mission, whether that's learning who our visitors are, having better access to our collection, providing a better conversational platform with our visitors. Those are outcomes for me, and the the forensic way it's done is of less consequence. But one thing I do believe is insourcing the capacity, because as you note, if you hire, no offense to web developers, I've worked for years with outside web developers, and I always will. Um, but in our case here, it's more advantageous to have that expertise in-house and allows you to change things on the fly, to be thinking ahead of the pack, and it's why we introduced a paintings conservation program here in-house. We had previously outsourced paintings conservation. Unless you have a conservator who knows the collection, knows its foibles, knows long-term what it needs, you're not really able to do the job of caring for the carbon assets. And I feel the same way about the digital assets. Unless you have the in-house team here that's coping with the external pressures and changes and platforms and devices and and changes in software, you're not going to be able to keep up.
2: Well, and you're you're talking about uh, being able uh, to be nimble. And in this day and age, it's uh, it's all about being nimble. Uh, You know, many even though I I think your your approach uh, uh, is. Truly, I think relatively unique, and, and certainly the art museum world. And I, I'm afraid in, in my beloved science and natural history museums as well, where the uh, where the in-house digital capacity people are usually relegated to the basement. You you know down uh, there there's somewhere down in in the in the tomes next to the exhibitors' offices, or uh, maybe in the marketing department. But they don't really get a voice, and if the- they're not up there on the penthouse floor or wherever the senior management level offices are. They just their their abilities aren't uh, valued to to the level that clearly you are valuing them in uh, in your institution. I think that's really an important shift that we need to make in our museums today.
3: Well, yeah, I look at it as another key communicative. Form, like speaking, like we're doing right now. So, Unless you have people who are literate in digital language, then you're basically cutting off potentially millions of online visitors who want access to what it is you're doing. And we've seen real growth in our online audience in the last year and a half, two years, but we know we've got a long way to go to be of, of greater relevance overseas and around the country as well as serving people in our own neighborhood who may not be here constantly but want to stay in touch with us. So it's just the realization that people through the door is one marker of it's a symptom of how you're doing, but it simply can't be any longer the definition of how you're doing.
2: Yes, and to underscore the obvious, because you are a free institution, because you're not worrying about visitors' through the door representing $5, $10, $20 towards your revenue stream, you don't make those false distinctions between serving an audience who's coming through the doors versus serving a a virtual audience who is listening to you or uh, getting services from you who are in the Ukraine, for instance.
3: I mean, we want to be relevant in people's lives, and we're pretty agnostic about who those people are, apart from wanting to be specifically important to those who live near us and make sure they feel that we're indispensable to their lives. That's the low bar we've set for ourselves.
2: Yeah, the low bar. Yeah, you know, you know Max, I mean you know you you and I've known each other from for for many years. I've watched your your career with with great pride as you've 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 moved from one institution to another and still maintaining your your core values at heart and but the one thing that I just find fascinating is that even though you and I are of a generation that we can't claim to have been born with a, with an iPad in our hands, uh, we're from a previous generation who used to use the phone and a real typewriter, uh, you are very, very comfortable in what I would call your digital skin. And... <laughs> Uh you, you as as you say you you may not be interested in the technology itself but you're you're quite uh conversant in thinking about what the technology can do for you and I just wonder could you talk a little bit about you know how how you were uh how you got this way
3: <laughs> Oh Carol it's probably Probably a function of multiple causes, but I, I remember I was a James Bond fan as a boy. You know, I mean, to me, that was that was the world that you could aspire to inhabit. And all those gadgets and all that technology were in the, in the early 60s, something that with transistor radios, I remember getting my first transistor radio, I thought it was the coolest device ever. And I never really fell that far behind the curve in respect of following how portable uh, media and distributed media might become important. I was reminiscing with our son, who's going to the Tisch School at NYU in the fall, about the days when I would hide in my room and listen to the radio, the transistor radio at night, and it was this illicit experience, and I compare that with you know how he's been surfing the web since he was a tyke. Um, my, my real emergence in this was at the Metropolitan Museum, when as a curator, the first personal computer came out, and I was quick to buy one for the Greek and Roman department. (laughs) And it was the first PC at the Metropolitan Museum in 1981 or 2. And I just found the whole universe uh, as it evolved, something that one needed to stay in touch with and be part of. So for me, the the big aha moment was also when I got to Atlanta, to Emory University uh, in 1987, and realized I was on a college campus with a fiber network and hadn't really known what that meant. But suddenly there I was using a mosaic browser building, I'm told, one of the first 20 museum websites in the world for the Carlos Museum, then the Emory Museum, trying to figure out with my fellow directors around the country, how many of you have email? And it turned out that nine of us had email in, in 1988 or so. And we set up a listserv so that we could type to each other. And it was just, it's never stopped, Carol. I've always been curious about how those boundaries move and not wanting to fall behind in the potential for communication, for collaboration and innovation. And at the root of it, it's, that's what it's all about.
2: So what advice would you give other museum leaders uh, to, who are struggling to embrace their digital side
3: I think, you know, a lot of my colleagues are, are very savvy today in, in understanding what they need. They may not be as curious as I am about the way to get there, and many don't want to be innovating. I think that's a, I think something I've heard, and it took me a long time to understand. I ran a program in 1993 for the Association of Art Museum Directors in Seattle, and the tie was chairing the program, and the, the theme was the information superhighway which is a phrase that means nothing to somebody younger than us. And I asked Bill Gates to speak to us. And at the time, ninety-three. this was before the web had really taken off. And I was asking him about the web, and he was talking about software. And I I realized that I didn't – I couldn't understand why my other colleagues weren't as obsessed as I was with the network. But I think for those who today realize the power of the network – but not necessarily what relevance it is for their institutions beyond a calling card, which is their museum website. I I suppose I just look at the opportunities that come from collaboration across institutions where we can learn together and make mistakes together and be unembarrassed uh, by virtue of making mistakes together rather than one museum at a time. And since the Amico project in the mid-90s when we launched a consortium of about 35 museums and had over a third of a million images from our respective museums, I've always thought it's better to row together than to be the first to do something and have it you know, be proud of you're your very the first to do X, and then you discover you're all alone because everybody has <laughs> ridden right past you, <laughs> leaving you in the dust.
2: Yes. Talk to those people who who still had stock in Betamax another another reference that no one under 50 will get at all but you know I must say that my listeners are, are extremely um, uh, uh, kind when it when it comes to understanding my uh, uh, my anachronisms uh, and speaking of visitors uh, and listeners I think that this is a perfect opportunity to take a, a second break but please do come back because uh, Max Anderson has a great deal of wisdom to give all of us in the museum field from art museums to zoos, aquariums, and my beloved science institutions. So please come back in a moment. Remember, you can always reach me at carolbossertservices.com or uh, shoot me an email on that network that uh, Max invented uh, at carol.bossert at verizon.net. And let me know the museum issue that uh, you'd like to talk about. We'll be back in just a moment. This is Museum Life.
1: And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show, Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety.
4: Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank
1: you for calling
0: voiceamerica.com.
1: You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at Verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life.
2: Welcome back, you are listening to Museum life. I'm Carol Bossert, and I have been having a wonderful time today talking with my friend and colleague Max Anderson, the director of the Dallas Museum of Art and uh, someone who has really embraced his digital side uh, but understands that uh, the the uh, the toys in the toolbox are not half as important as the uh, questions we're asking and the questions we're asking in the museum world always come down to why we're doing it, how it supports our mission, and how can we provide service to our ever-growing audiences. And Max, uh, you've been a leader in both uh, every institution you've ever worked in. You've also been a leader in the art museum world at large. You were the, as you said, you were the first uh, to really understand some of the impact of uh, what digitization was going to do. Uh, you were certainly one of the first uh, in in writing about the impact that digitization might do to uh, copyright issues and uh, issues of ownerships in, in in our museums uh, it, I remember reading your first book and thinking why is this important right now <laughs> what's he talking about <laughs> Certainly a digital photograph is never going to be as good as the real one uh, so uh, you know, the, your your prescience has, has always just just inspired me uh, and so one of the the, the questions that that I'm going going to address is really not only for current museum directors but for that larger group of up-and-coming leadership. Now they probably know a lot more about digitization than you and I ever will, and they're more comfortable with it, but they are soon going to be uh, taking on the leadership roles and, and moving our museums really into the, the middle of the next century. And so I was wondering, Max, uh, both some of the, uh, what advice you're giving to up-and-coming leaders today?
3: Well, Cal, you're, you're too kind in the way you frame up what I've been involved in. I've been learning with the rest of everybody in our field, and I, I just happen to be able to maybe express myself um, without fear of embarrassment when I probably should be afraid. What I would say going forward is that the the unanswered question is how far does the porosity between the institution and the visitor go? Because we're at a point now where obviously because of Twitter, for example, the the world can speak with one voice very quickly about something, and that's a pretty radical shift from a, a more passive approach to communication, in which, yeah, you could have multi-pronged connections and conversations, but not with the same volume of voices all at once and rising as a chorus. So I think that challenge that the future leaders of institutions like ours will face have more to do with the boundaries that are set between artistic or scientific mission and public interest, governing what choices the institution makes. And I'm not talking about crowdsourcing exhibitions, which I know is a fad right now. And I'm not even talking so much about making museums manifestly more open to criticism, which clearly we have to be. It's even more basic than that. I think the question that we're all going to be coping with, and our successors will be especially, is who owns the institution if, in fact, we're dependent on support from individuals, primarily, and those individuals now have a direct line to express themselves visibly to everybody else. Where do you see that line moving to public involvement in institutions from being simply observers or what we call visitors to people who are actively engaged in the life of the museum? And I don't know where that goes, and I don't know what boundaries will end up being erased, but it's pretty interesting to ponder. Uh,
2: That is. uh, And I... uh... I'm struck by your your use of you know the 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 fads of crowdsourcing right now. Um, I I must say that some of that I, I I just I truly don't understand. And as a as someone who entered this business as a curator and who still is a curator for hire uh, from different projects from time to time, it is. Very challenging for me to to understand where, where that conversation even begins between people who choose to come to the museum, whether it's virtually or real and choose to have a conversation, and how do we level that playing field of, of conversation between, say, the expert, the curator, and the person who has come to learn or enjoy or, or be with others in a beautiful space?
3: Right. Well, you know, you think of the movie business, and it's still a popular niche in the U.S. economy and in economies around the world. People don't tend to go to a cinema and expect to to tell the, I mean, change the plot, uh, they, they right. want to get lost in that fantasy world or that documentary. They want to be led, they want to be brought along by other talented people whom they respect. And I don't think museums should give up on our leadership as scholars, as researchers, as experts in different fields. And I don't think the public wants us to. I think where the opportunity exists is to figure out how we're being strategic in making manifest our information and making our knowledge appetizing and relevant in people's lives, not doing away with it. <laughs> I don't. I mean, if we did that, we wouldn't really need to exist. We could just be warehouses. So that's where the negotiating point, I think, for the next generation will come in pretty clearly is how do you not second to a plebiscite the decisions about what an institution does but rely on that public voice, one person at a time, aggregated or not, to help shape the way you communicate and make relevant what it is you're doing
2: and i th- yes and and to add to that of uh, and circling back around to what we were talking about earlier with institutions such as yours making some very significant changes in uh sort of lowering the drawbridge or lowering the the uh, the threshold of getting into the museum we are also truly embracing a broader diversity uh and i think that that to me is 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 the most challenging and most interesting aspect of how do we continue on these conversations truly with a, a broadly diverse audience that doesn't simply come to the museum because their parents brought them to the museum or they went to a certain university and took a certain art history class. Uh, and where where do you think that this diversity is, is going to play into our uh, into our into this uh, porosity conversation, if you will.
3: Well, forty two percent of Dallasites are Latino, so I can promise you that forty two percent of our visitors are not Latino, and we start with that massive challenge. That certainly in the, here in the Southwest, the majority will soon be Spanish speaking, and in the U.S. in general, that will be the case within a generation. So we're laggards in figuring out what to do to make ourselves relevant to an audience. Uh, we have a show we opened last week called Noor, Light and Islamic Art and Science, which has wall texts in English, Spanish, and Arabic. And I can promise you, for the 150,000 Muslims who live in the Dallas area, the idea of walking into their public art museum and reading wall texts in Arabic is a bit of a novelty. But it's such an obvious thing to do, and yet it's taken this long for us to be to move the meter in that respect. So I think it's, it's pretty nice to speak to somebody in their own language. That would be a, a good point of departure. But like some of the cities you and I live in and have lived in, there are dozens of languages that are spoken in households, if not hundreds. And we need to make sure that we're making ourselves incrementally available to people in their lingua franca, and that at the same time we're thinking about strategies of the delivery systems of whatever it is we're espousing and and favoring in the promotion of works of art as conversational openings that touch on people's lives today and not only on the way a curator was trained 20, 30 years ago. Do you... uh
2: in addition to the uh, the language, which I, I agree entirely, there was a, a couple of marvelous uh, evaluations that uh, that just came out um, about the the importance of translating uh, label copy or or uh, multimedia piece or the movie into English and Spanish, and not just so that Spanish speakers could read the Spanish, because mo- many Spanish speakers in this country are bilingual and they they flop back and forth between uh, both languages very easily but as you were just saying it is a symbol of of respect and uh, true generosity and wanting someone else to to be comfortable in in conversation right but but one of the things that i know gets uh, thrown back at us sometime, and I'm 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 just going to uh, because I know your your background was in uh, the Greek and Roman uh, uh, period in, in uh, sculpture, and and someone might say, well, you know, this this new audience isn't interested in all those dead Etruscans. Uh, Where you know that's that's not uh, an area that we should even be uh, concerned about anymore. Um, How how do you feel about that?
3: Well, I have the privilege of running an encyclopedic museum, so I have a good excuse from our founding intention to cover soup to nuts here, from prehistory to the present. And as a result, I look at this place as a living, breathing encyclopedia, and I can't lose any volumes simply because at the moment people aren't interested in a particular epic in in their lives. Because I'm looking at the long-term play. It's a 111-year-old museum. Our mission includes telling the whole history of art from around the world to everybody who walks in the door. So the challenge for me isn't that at the moment someone might not be as drawn to Etruria. But what we did for that area was we recently borrowed an intact tomb group from an Etruscan. Burial site from Italy, and it's the first time I've ever shown an intact tomb group with the household implements and vessels, beautiful, precious, painted vases that were used at a dining in a dining room in a triclinium of somebody back in the fifth century BC. And what a story you can tell from that! You can look at the taste of this person at the myths that interested them in particular that they set about acquiring for their own personal collection that's a different story from simply putting pots in a line uh in a column line and saying here here's this history of the sequence of greek vase painting so you do have to work harder in many instances to make works of art relevant in people's lives or interesting and science is a good way to do that as you know well the whole csi phenomenon mm-hmm. of unpacking the condition of objects or the the frailty or the ways in which they've been they've suffered or have been treated is of real interest to the public.
2: Oh, we and all love, we all love a good mystery. That's absolutely yeah. true. Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, and, and it, uh, and it also reminds me of that. something that, that uh, Leslie Bedford and I were talking about recently, another good friend of yours, um, the importance of placemaking, that the, the museum can provide a context for those things that while you can look at them individually on the computer or you can uh, source them out in all the great museums of the world putting, uh, creating the juxtaposition of, of, uh, of objects and uh, putting them in, in the human context is something that uh, museum exhibits can do very very well and I don't think we've quite uh, figured out a way of doing that uh, in, in avert Way So that also may be an area that we can continue to hold as our own.
3: Yeah, and I've also long hoped that as the world becomes more digital, that curiosity and admiration about the authentic is going to increase in proportion to that. That the rarity of seeing something from long ago or of great, ra- great rarity and quality that isn't available at the mall or on a screen in, in the way that one can assess it and be near it, that that is something that will increasingly be of value. And we're all watching this seismic shock of how Amazon is displacing malls. And we're talking about a huge shudder to the American economy and urban and suburban planning and transit and traffic maintenance all because of one innovation of a, a retailer who figured out how we could actually sell everything. <laughs> so the, the people still want the stuff that they get from Amazon at the end. Uh, the Amazon is a phenomenon, but people are still getting their carbon. And in the art world, the only place to get your carbon publicly accessible is art museums.
2: Very, very interesting. Max, we've got about two minutes, so this is the lightning round question. Ready? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Max Anderson, you get up every morning and you do tremendous and wonderful things thinking about your institution and its visitors and its place and its community. What are the three questions you ask yourself every morning to make sure that you're keeping on the right track?
3: Oh, well, you and I learned that mantra a long time ago at the Museum Management Institute, which is who are you serving, what do they need, and what's your capacity to meet that need?
2: Perfect. Thank you. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, Max. You are, you always inspire me, and you will continue to inspire me. Uh, I am, I'm thrilled that you are on the show today, and to my listening audience, uh, if you have any questions, any thoughts about what you've heard today, I'm sure you can reach out to Max at the Dallas Museum of Art, follow them on their own dashboard, and remember, you can always reach me at Services.com. I'll be back next week with uh, another very exciting guest and uh, talking about issues that are of concern to our museum community. Max, thank you again. Uh, It was just a wonderful conversation.
3: Thank you so much, Carol. I really enjoyed it,
2: too. (laughs) Wonderful. Remember, you can always reach me at carol.bossert at verizon.net. What museum issues would you like to talk about? We'll talk about them on Museum Life. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.